familiar with the annoyances of the learning curves and integration problems and data extraction problems of using multiple software products or platforms at once. Uh, unfortunately, those are not gripes that you would want to share in the same room as our guest today on the Tech Emergence podcast. This interview uh, was actually recorded at Yahoo headquarters, where we were lucky enough to catch up with Amats Maiman, who is the chief architect of Yahoo. Uh, not some dark corner of Yahoo, but, but Yahoo proper. Uh, so he makes uh, the big picture decisions around what technology platforms will be used and how they'll be integrated across Yahoo's wide swath of teams and wide swath of product offerings. He speaks with us this week uh, amidst the lovely bay views and lovely Yahoo purple chairs of the conference rooms at Yahoo uh, about uh, technology governance and how uh, companies, small and large, can make uh, faster and better decisions around what technologies to use, how to integrate them and streamline them, and how to add machine learning into that mix. Yahoo's been using machine learning for uh, 10 years or so at the time of this recording, according to my, uh, Mr. Maimon, and uh, he goes into sort of how companies large and small can, can do something similar. So certainly important insights for those looking to scale, and certainly a fun time for me being able to join him at Yahoo headquarters. So hopefully you guys enjoy this episode straight from Yahoo HQ. Uh, so, Max, we could go first into uh, the return on investment of machine learning. Obviously, a company like Yahoo, uh, lots of different areas where machine learning can be applied, uh, from computer vision to myriad other applications. What do you see as sort of a good way of thinking through how to get ROI from this amorphous thing, machine learning, for the smaller or maybe mid-sized businesses of the world, given what you guys have learned? So, I think uh, you obviously have to start with a business question. What what business optimization you want to make. Uh, and at Yahoo, we've been using machine learning for over a decade now, essentially to drive our core business. So this is uh, optimizing the user experience and advertising and search. Uh, but there's a small to medium business. You have to think, what business problem am I trying to solve and what information, what data do I have to operate on it? And some of the prime examples where you can get a relatively low barrier to entry and faster ROI is focusing on optimizing the customer experience for small business. So it's knowing your customer, knowing your customer buying habits, doing marketing optimization, doing customer service optimization. One way to get into it will be to actually engage with business partners that are domain experts as opposed to investing in infrastructure. Infrastructure is usually expensive and it takes more time and investment. So depending on the size of a business and what they're after, a fast ROI would be focusing on domain experts that provide the business solution. Again, at Yao, because of our size and because we trailblaze it, we have to do a lot of it ourselves. Yeah, and with more of that uh, infrastructure burden, when you mention um, business partners with domain expertise. What sort of examples of, of vendors or businesses are you referring to there? You know, what are who are folks that can kind of take that burden of the infrastructure off? So I think on out? the online marketing optimization, there've been quite a few vendors for a while that try to take your online web traffic and then kind of uh, optimize your marketing based on it, optimize your web performance. Now in kind of the blending between digital and physical world, we see people that actually try to optimize experience in brick and mortar shops, 
Um, but uh, these are areas that are well developed. I don't have any specific vendor yeah, in yeah. mind. And again, it's not unlike what we do. We collect all of our user data for years and years. Uh, we keep uh, huge amounts of data and we use it to optimize the user experience so they come back to our services. We serve a very large uh, audience. At Yahoo, you just do it at a smaller scale based on your specific business needs. Yeah, and what kind of information, I guess, you have kind of coming in in droves? As you had mentioned, um, maybe low-hanging fruit for where you're getting the most information is customer experience, marketing, where maybe we're already looking at something that's pretty calculable, pretty quantitative. Um, and uh, I actually haven't heard that much of the uh, brick-and-mortar customer experience thing. That's, that's quite curious because there's such a, such a gap compared to clicks and, and all that. Um, do you see that as something reasonable in the coming years or will we really be able to start optimizing you know, based on visual data or like purchases made and how long people spend in stores and well, things like that? If you look at the beacon, the Apple beacon or other beacons that kind of see where you are in the store and what's your route and which products you actually stand by and you can send the... But this is future looking. Yeah. Um, fascinating though. Really fascinating. Yeah, Bridge that go, gap. If you go back to, yeah, we collect... So our... our our mission is to inform and enlighten and entertain our users. So we collect, we apply a lot of machine learning to content that we sell to understand the content well and be able to derive which content would be interesting to what user. We collect information about the user habits, what do they like, what don't they like, when they read what, uh, when, they, when they engage with what type of content, and we try to blend the two into a personalized delivery of content to the users. The information they collect, the reams of information, is effectively each and every of uh, the users, and we serve close to a billion users every uh, month. Um, what route do they take, what content they engage with, what do they click on, what do they read, what content they dwell on because they are interested, and so on. Um, so it's effectively the online user behavior coupled with very deep analysis of the content, and from that applying machine learning to both of them, and together machine learning and deep learning to create a personalized high-value experience. And of course, for you folks, again, as you had mentioned, you know, we're talking about a lot, a lot of users, um, and this is kind of far from a startup now, given where uh, Yahoo is. There's other concerns that you folks uh, deal with that maybe people at mid-sized companies are thinking about pretty seriously. Maybe people at smaller companies are not thinking about, namely the standardization and governance of these technologies. You deal with tech governance on a bigger scale than just machine learning, but we're talking about a lot of moving parts and a lot of data and, and uh, a lot of places to store information and ways to leverage it. Um, at a big company like Yahoo, how do you kind of keep the reins on machine learning as, as a tool in a big company like this? Uh, it's an interesting challenge because what you want to do is not just keep the rein. You want to keep the rein and still drive innovation at uh, high speed. So how do you balance the two? Usually if you try to apply too much control, then you slow down innovation. And generally what we try to do, and I'll get back to big data in a minute, is we try to mandate the things that are important and then teach people how to make good decisions and 
move more to a guidance world and a kind of a control, keep the rain world. We operate something called the Tech Council. We look at a lot of technology decisions I drive, technology strategy and architecture for the company, but we try to do it in a way that enables a much larger organization to scale up and innovate. When it comes to big data, the one thing that we really insisted on was that all the data will go to one place. And that way you don't get fragmentation, you can always get to all the data regardless of the sources, and we can leverage it for uh, improving, as I said, our user experience, our advertising, our overall business. So for us, we standardized on Hadoop and HDFS many years ago. It was uh, quite a lot of engineering heavy lifting. At some point, we put it into open source. Now everyone enjoys it. It's still kind of the source of tools for everything we know is in HDFS. We have about 600 petabytes of data stored, large numbers. Large numbers. Um, the second thing that we try to keep more or less standard are the processing framework on top of it. Now, it's more than one because we try to optimize them for the use cases, but we currently use uh, MapReduce and Tez. We use Spark on top of HDFS, and we even integrated deep learning capabilities into our Hadoop cluster all operating on the same data. The place where we don't try to apply standardization is the actual programming languages because we want the data scientists and the researchers to be as productive as possible and use whatever language they, they feel comfortable with. And that way we get the benefits of large-scale data collection, which everyone has access to it, coupled with a very productive and kind of innovative environment for our data scientists. And is that, um, I mean, I imagine that opens up a bit of a can of worms. You, you mentioned the initial dynamic as soon as I brought this up of maintaining the reins and maintaining speedy innovation, um, and that those can be at odds, but obviously you want to be able to maintain both uh, for your business objectives. Um, you know, if, if some applications are being built with, you know, R and, and Spark and, and uh, whatever other languages, um, is it is it possible to you know ensure the kind of communication between those applications can can one potential use case whether it be something related to what content you're exposing to people um, can we be using multiple languages for kind of a, a big similar sort of application that different people are kind of tacking on parts and I'm imagining like a a big kind of Lego building of some kind where people are just like plugging in different things with different languages um, does that present uh, challenges with those different languages, or are you able to just kind of bring it up to the to the uh, processing framework and sort of make it make sense there and, and kind of eliminate those differences? Typically, the the mix and match between the different application happens at the data level and the processing level. So the fact that you, regardless of the language, can access all the data uh, the same way provides a lot of these benefits that you described. We have some places where actually the standardization that we apply is around the data schema. So you don't just access the data, you know what it represents. And you know, a user, I don't know, name is a username and kind of a topic of an article. And we have a knowledge graph that when you represent a world entity, it's the same world entity and not five different uh, instantiation of it. So 
the standardization is more around the schemas that we use and where we store the data and how we store the data and once we have that and we can interoperate on it regardless of the languages. There's still some uh, convergence happening anyway because teams of researchers tends to use uh, the same language when they sit together and work together. In a few languages that are relatively popular these days, Python is one of them, data yep, scientists, okay. Scala is another one. Uh, we still have quite a lot of uh, Java make produce jobs and Java that runs on stream processing. So these are the primaries that you find, but you'll find others here and there. And again, we try to keep it open so we don't impede productivity. Yeah, that's interesting. So you, you've uh, maintain rigidity where you need to have it so you have some common standard, but let people kind of paint with their own brush, uh, so to speak. You mentioned this idea of the tech council, which I think is probably new for smaller companies, but makes a lot of sense at a larger one. Um, it sounds as though there's there's a council, I meaning you guys are using the word there, of, of folks who are uh, making the calls around, you know, where, you know, what is it, for example, you mentioned with, with your 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 data, uh, maintaining it all in one place, making sure that that's a standard. That was a decision made somewhere. Um, is, is this a council specifically dedicated to uh, the governance kinds of questions around, hey, what technologies are we going to use? What's going to have to be rolled out across all of these specific applications, but not these? Um, is, is, is that sort of the sole function of that uh that sort of business unit seems like an interesting uh, role for a bigger, bigger Well, the tech council is a horizontal function, so the people on it represent. So, our engineering organization is actually um, organized by pro main product lines and is optimized for the business. And then the tech council provides a governing glue on top of these organizations. Um, and the goal is to provide direct forward going direction, not just standardization and control. So we have discussions on kind of technology strategy, what new technologies we want to bring in. Some of them are being initiated at the tech council. Some of them, you know, people from the engineering organization say, hey, we think we need this, we think we need that, and we sit down and discuss it. We have discussions on investment areas. Some of the discussions are around, okay, what should we stop and where should we standardize? So standardization is definitely part of it. It's not the only function. Uh, generally, what uh, we try to do with the tech council is, as I said, drive good, high-quality technology decisions. So when you do something, whether standard or not, have you thought about the problem the right way? Are you addressing it with enough discipline? Are you doing things in a good way that can be scaled to the upscale? And you mentioned it's, it's horizontal function. I imagine you know for different decisions, you might need different people at the table, people who are subject matter experts in different <clears throat> product lines, for example, to sort of call the shots. Hey, that might make sense from this kind of logical standpoint, but really when we're down here boots on the ground, we need to be able to do this. Yeah. Um, so, so I can imagine that some of those decisions, you have to pull in different, different folks across the company. That's, that's absolutely true, absolutely correct. Um, um, when I uh, started the Tech Council in its current uh, format, uh, Yahoo had a few uh, iterations of uh, Tech Council before I joined. 
uh, one of the goals was to make it inclusive and collaborative. So not necessarily just uh, ivory tower, we sit up yeah. there, <laughs> we know best and we make decisions, but people come in, they come in for a discussion. It's not always working. So we have a permanent membership of about a dozen people that represents a lot of disciplines and a lot of um, groups in the organization. And for each meeting, we invite other, both the individual group that is kind of being discussed or reviewed and domain experts, and we have an open discussion. Um, and we try, as I said, to be inclusive, collaborative, and kind of much more of a constructive discussion rather than a, an academic criticism of right or wrong. Um, um, with regards to like how uh, smaller companies might even be able to apply the same sort of idea, I can imagine uh, it is possible to have almost no governance and grow to a point where you realize that that was an error, and there's probably many companies that have done that. Um, when companies are kind of beginning to scale and have big goals to, to grow um, and, and have large applications and huge data sets, um, what might they want to bear in mind even at the smaller level? I mean, would it make sense to talk to companies in a similar kind of business who are larger and figure out uh, what they've had to do in order to sort of maintain some semblance of standardization? Um, what kind of thought processes or, or kind of homework might they want to dig into to prepare for, they, they won't have as large a challenge as you guys here at Yahoo, but to prepare for the same kind of governance concerns of a growing company? I think, uh, especially for growing startups, uh, it's a very interesting uh, challenge. And I've been to a few startups myself before joining Yahoo. <laughs> um, and there are a few principles that I think works very well. And basically, what you want to do is you want to scale up the organization in a similar way to what you would do to scale up a system. So we learned very well how to scale up distributed systems. You have some non-APIs, you have some core principles, how to scale it up, and then you do horizontal scaling. And in a way, you can apply the same principles to an organization. The, you identify the boundaries. So you, have, you need a shared vision, you need a common architecture, and then within the architecture, you make the teams and the groups as autonomous as possible, and you tell them, as long as you maintain the common architecture and you apply the same engineering values, the same principles, go move as fast as you can. Cool. And you get this combination of scaling things up without breaking them or getting into a spaghetti situation uh, and still moving fast based on kind of small autonomous teams and very agile operation. I I, uh, I like the the term spaghetti situation. That'll, that'll be a worthwhile quote for uh, for an interview. I always try to grab one. Yeah, that everyone in the software business that have been around the while have seen spaghetti systems. Yes, yes, spaghetti systems. And of course, that's what I suppose the the executives listening in would probably want to avoid, especially the startups tuning yeah. in. Um, a last question that I think sort of riffs off of this and might be a fun one to close on. You guys, as as you're mentioning. You have to, uh, you know, maintain the reins to some degree. But you have to also have to be trailblazing. Yahoo is big enough where you guys are doing enough in-house research and pushing the boundaries on, um, you know, machine vision applications and and your ads and search. Um, and 
And of course, in, in realms that are relatively new, where there's some academic and some business experiments, but it's, it's, it's sort of a new frontier, uh, there aren't really, uh, there isn't a place where you can weigh one decision compared to the other, like on a, uh, on a map somewhere. So oh, how does this software compare to this software? Well, this has this feature, this has this feature, they've been around for this long, they, they're used by these companies. Sort of amorphous in some way. Um, and to know where are we gonna allocate our people, where are we gonna allocate our money, into these realms that are somewhat new, what's the kind of uh, what's the kind of you know information that you guys need to have in order to make those calls? Is it looking at what other businesses are, is, are doing where there's enough traction? Is it thinking through um, you know obviously costs and expenses is sort of part of the decision? It seems like a a very big white canvas problem to say we're going to you know blaze new trails into machine learning and AI or, or other technology applications. Like what kind of research needs to be done? What do you need to feel confident about a decision when you know it's that wide open, you know, in the new frontiers? Usually it's a combination of two basic things and it, it might sound simple or oversimplistic. First one is going back, you, you have to identify what problem am I solving? Either current today's problem or future problem. Is it going to drive better user experience or or better business, and if we go back to the Flickr and kind of computer vision, if you analyze the pictures uh, the right way and you do a very nice search and recommendations based on the analysis and you drive better user experience. So you have, you have a goal in mind. And the second one is to do a little bit of feasibility on the research on the technology, and you do that in an iterative way. You try to address the main risks earlier on and you just keep iterating. So this is actually no different than startup innovation, where you say, I have a general uh, goal in mind, business goal, uh, product goals, and a piece of uh, technology or some ideas or some academic research, and I will iterate on it, and what do I want to prove this quarter, and what will I prove next quarter, and you start by allocating a few people just to do the early feasibility, and you scale it up based on the results, or at some point you say, this is not working, we move away. We did it on the computer vision, although this was pretty much at the same time that the rest of the industry was also moving, so the risk wasn't that high. Uh, we did it on several other very large-scale deep learning, machine learning problems. We explore certain algorithm. One of the challenges we have is the size of the data and the size of the model that we build is larger than most other companies, so we have to invest in engineering in running these machine learnings at, at scale with high performance. Um, but basically it's kind of iterate, eliminate the risks, figure out the right architecture and either move on or if we are going to run into dead ends, try to realize it as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah, so figure out what are, what are those early thresholds where if you can cross them, you know that there's promise to test more or that you know yeah. it's time to, to shut the box. Sometimes is that also a bit of a tuning you had mentioned in, in machine vision that was also when there was other action moving in that same space. You know, Shutterstock has some pretty interesting machine learning work and um, other folks uh, are, are, are some, somewhere in that realm. It is, is part of it kind of a tuning to, you know, who's investing in what uh, elsewhere in the industry? Are those kind of like clues and cues as to how much is being invested in this space by other bigger industry players and maybe how well it's worked out for them or how much it's flopped for them? I think for us, it's more driven by where well, we want to take our business first and less by competition. 
once we identify where we want to take the business, then we can look around and see what technologies or what new research is coming out of the industry or out of the open source community or out of different places. And that helps us inform how to address a business problem. But uh, a big part of our business, we don't drive it by competition. We drive it by kind of some vision of where we want to take the business, where we want to take the product. Um, on the technology side, it is a little bit driven by kind of if it's cutting edge, what's coming out of academia, or what do we think, you know, our, our own researchers yeah. <laughs> cook up all kinds of crazy ideas, some of them more, more feasible than others. It's um, crazy researchers, you know. It's always fascinating. And, um, so and, there is and then finger. how do you apply them? Um, you have to experiment, you have to yep. foster some of these crazy ideas, some of them will pan out, some of them will not. Uh, when it get to my domain, it's a question of what will it drive either this year or in three years and when it's time to invest in it. Yeah, and, and uh, I suppose it sounds like you guys keep some finger on the pulse of academia oh, yeah. to some degree. And, and uh, Hopefully, some of the, the younger companies who might be tuned in will um, one day have their own big team of researchers like Yahoo, so long as they can follow a little bit of your advice and avoid those spaghetti situations. So uh, that's that's all we have for uh, today, Amats, but thanks so much for the interview, brother. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, that wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence Podcast, and thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives, top researchers and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category as well as articles, news, market research and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks as always for tuning in and I'll catch you next week.